Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Nick Morgan. Nick is one of the world's top communication theorists, coaches, speakers, writers, and consultants. He's a former fellow at the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, in addition to being the founder of Public Words, Inc., a company dedicated to developing master communicators. Nick is the author of several books, including Trust Me, Power Cues, and Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, it's a great pleasure. Great to be with you. Can you tell me, Nick, a little bit about your background, what you do, how you got started? Yeah, sure. I was uh, a humble academic uh, many years ago, and I got a call from a friend of mine who had been promoted up the ranks to be Secretary of Education in the state of Virginia, and I was at University of Virginia teaching public speaking in Shakespeare. And he said, Morgan, how'd you like to take that academic bullshit of yours and put it to the test? In the real world, and I said, yeah, sure. He knew I couldn't resist a, a challenge. What are you talking about? And he said, well, the previous speechwriter for the governor of Virginia has just had a nervous breakdown, um, and um, he needs a replacement. And in short order, can you step in? So I said, sure. Now, I should have asked, why did he have a nervous breakdown? Uh, but um, he knew me, and he knew I'd rise to the challenge before I asked the smart question. So, so <laughs> uh, the reason he had a nervous breakdown was overwork, of course. I wrote, for the next two years, I wrote five speeches a day, seven days a week. I had one day off, one day out of seven, I was working, that is seven days a week I was working, and that was Christmas. So it was, uh, it was a foxhole experience, it was incredibly hard work, but it was also fabulous, and I got bitten by the bug of getting out of the academic world and, and seeing how communications, public speaking, coaching worked. In, in the real world of politics, if that can be called the real world. So I did politics for a while and then, and then moved over when my life needed to calm down a bit and I started getting older into the business world. And I've been doing that uh, for the last 20 years, coaching people in uh, public speaking and, and communicating, being intentional communicators, that is communicating what they want to communicate rather than something accidental. Can you expand on that? Because I think that's something that's pertinent to a lot of people who are listening to this. Yeah, sure. Every communication is two conversations, always. On the one hand, it's the content of what you say, and that's what we all think about. And then the other hand, it's the body language. And for various reasons, we've evolved to be unconscious creatures, mostly when it comes to body language. So we don't think about our body language. In fact, we're hardwired not to care about it. What we care about is the intent behind the body language. So we want to know when somebody comes toward us, is this person a friend or a foe? Do I have to go into a defensive crouch or do I give them a hug? Uh, and that's the basic question we ask to begin all human relationships. And so um, we are in control mostly, for better or for worse, to a certain extent with our content, but we're typically not in control of our body language. And what I mean by becoming an intentional communicator is making sure those two conversations are aligned, and so you're communicating what you want to communicate. I can give you a very simple example out of the world of public speaking, and it'll all make sense. So most people get nervous when they get ready to give a speech. That's 95% of the population gets nervous. Some people get really nervous. Some people just get jittery, get butterflies. Um, and 
they spend a lot of time preparing the content of the speech they're about to give. Typically, people spend 0% of the time thinking about their body language. So they walk out on stage, and their content is what it's about, whatever it is, and they're trying to be confident and, and get across a point of view, persuade the audience of something, trying to look smart, maybe uh, trying to be funny. And their body language is saying, help, I'm nervous, help, don't judge me. This is going terribly. I feel terrible. Um, and when you have body language saying one thing and content saying another, guess what? The body language always trumps the content. People believe the body language, not the content. And so what people get from that exchange on stage is a feeling that the person doesn't really mean what they say because their body language is saying help and their content is sounding confident and we believe the body language. So becoming an intentional communicator is all about starting to uh, take charge of that unconscious body language behavior so that you can align it with your content and be an effective communicator. You can show up and be the person you want to be, not the person <laughs> that you accidentally um, might reveal yourself to be frightened. That reminds me of the Nixon-Kennedy debates. Exactly. Classic instance there. Now, we don't really know who was more nervous than whom. Um, maybe Nixon was nervous. But there was no question that he sweated a lot under the hot lights of the TV cameras. And as a result, he looked uh, nervous. And the other issue, of course, was, too, that apparently he had quite the 5 o'clock shadow. Uh, and so he looked a little swarthy. He looked like he needed a shave. And you add those two things together, and he looked vaguely criminal, <laughs> whereas Kennedy looked suave and cool. And so he won the debate, as everybody said, not on content, but just on, on looks alone and went on to be the president. Yeah, great example. So there was Nixon being un, an unintentional communicator because his body language was saying one thing, I'm, I'm a nervous criminal, and his content was saying whatever it was. And of course, people believe the body language. It makes me think of when I first started Craft of Charisma, one of the things that we used to do, I give these lectures, and then we would take people out to the single scene and have them approach people. And even if you help them with what to say, like you give them an opening line, a way to engage with a group of people, oftentimes their body language was inconsistent because they were scared or nervous. And we're, we're talking about a fear of moving in and out of people's spaces. They're breaking the way that they're breaking eye contact. They're showing sort of a lot of very submissive behavior. And so it seems like when people do that, uh, the people around them, especially they're new, they start testing them a little bit. And it's like I had a conversation with um, Oh God, I can't think of his name. He wrote a book called Everybody is Sane. But he was saying that when humans walk into a new environment, they test for hierarchy. Yes. And so, I mean, maybe you could talk more about that because, I mean, I definitely see this incongruency when somebody is feeling very nervous inside and they approach a stranger. It could be a girl or a guy or whatever. They approach a stranger and especially if they're attracted to them and they're, they're feeling nervous inside, they might be having saying the same words that they would normally say to in situations they feel comfortable. Hello, how's your day going? What brought you out tonight? Right. But their body language, they're so nervous inside it, that feeling percolates in their body language and you get that inconsistency. Yes, exactly. So the, the first question that our uh, unconscious minds ask of a new face, a new person that we see is friend or foe. So we look for signs of threat. Um, and humans are more, for obvious reasons, for obvious survival reasons, we're more attuned to threat than we are to uh, openness and, and friendliness. So we pick up on threats first. 
and so let's assume that the uh, question friend or foe gets answered friend because the the person ner even though they're nervous maybe they smile maybe it's a half smile maybe it's kind of a nervous smile but at least they smile and they don't obviously appear to be carrying a club or brandishing their fists in a menacing way or something like that so so we kind of provisionally answer the question friend or foe for friend uh, we start to relax a little bit but that nervous behavior then comes out in subtle ways and so one of the things that we do when we're a little bit nervous or shy is we tend to clutch our hands in front of our torsos um, and close our behavior, body language. So we, we may put our hands together in some way, and we know perhaps not to fold our arms in the, in the typical sort of crossed arms position. We know that that's perhaps too much. But we'll figure out a way to get our hands up in front of our torso because we're hardwired to defend ourselves when we feel a little bit threatened. And that subtle signal that will then be picked up by the other person, and the other person's unconscious mind will say, hmm, low-level danger here in the room. This person is not comfortable. This person is edgy. And because we have these things called mirror neurons, we leak our emotions to each other. So when we see somebody acting in a nervous way, then we get mirror neurons, neurons that fire in our head the same emotion as the one we're picking up from the other person. So what you actually do in that situation, if you walk in and try to start a conversation and you're nervous, is you leak your nerves your nervousness to that other person, he or she gets nervous too, and pretty soon you're both agitated. It's no fun for either one of you, and at some point that conversation is going to get called off. That makes tons of sense, right? Because most people, well, I, I usually say like relationships, the currency is emotion, right? And so if you're around somebody and you feel uncomfortable, and in this case it's because they're uncomfortable, then you're less likely to build a relationship with them. Yeah, the key to understanding it is we think of ourselves as individuals and we're, we're trained, especially in the United States, we're trained to be um, stand on our own two feet and, and be strong and individual and whatnot, but actually we're hardwired to share emotions to each other. We're really a communal species. And as such, when we get together, the first thing we do is we start sharing emotions. We're not necessarily consciously aware of it unless the emotion's really strong. Maybe the other person is laughing hysterically or crying or something like that. Then we, then we notice. But if it's just these typical sort of low-level emotions, we're not thinking about it consciously, but we leak our emotions to each other. And so if the room, the vibe in the room is friendly and relaxed, then we're going to want to stay there and enjoy that. But if it isn't, if it's a little tense or a little nervous, uh, we're going to go, okay, let's get out of here. This is not fun. Where does that come from? Uh, well, it comes presumably, as far as we know, from ancient survival techniques and from being um, the, the current wisdom that is that we evolved body language to communicate with each other before we evolved language. And so imagine a group of cave people sitting around in a cave. They need to communicate danger. They need to respond as a group swiftly to an attack from a saber-toothed tiger or something, right? Uh, and so what they do uh, is uh, they share their emotions quickly, almost instantaneously, so that everybody can get on the same page. And you can imagine how essential that would be if you took away language. So before language, all we had to communicate was our emotions. Um, and, and, and the life of the, of the tribe there could depend on on us being able to pick up on somebody's emotion quickly, somebody running back into the cave. We need to know are they excited because there's a food source, or are they terrified because that food source looks like it's going to eat them. It also started making me think about sometimes when we're coaching, 
one of the things that we've recognized is that people tend to sort of face the things that they value. So if people are really into a conversation, everybody sort of faces towards each other. And if one person is not interested, maybe they're waiting for somebody else to come in because that person is sort of texting them that, or maybe they are on the prowl and they're looking to meet a boy or a girl. Like oftentimes we can look at their feet and notice that their feet are facing away from the group. And that's a, even though their torso might be facing towards the group and sort of it's a subcommunication that the value is not in the group. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, and I, you can certainly look at the feet. I always tell people, look at the head first, because by the time we're grown up, we're reasonably able to control our facial expressions. So we, we keep a neutral face, even if we're bored out of our minds at work. We, we know not to scowl at the boss, for example. But watch what the head is doing, because it's very hard for us to control the slight movement of our, of our heads and torsos toward things that we like and away from things that we don't like. Um, and just think of this in terms of if somebody says something ugly or racist or mean or something, our typical reaction is to pull back our, our head or, and maybe our whole body um, in an act of revulsion. Um, and on a smaller scale, we do this uh, all the time with thoughts that we, uh, that we, we like, things that people say that are funny or interesting. We tend to just pull slightly closer toward them. And so you can get a very early and quick and honest read from people on how they're feeling about the current conversation or the group by just watching what they're doing with their heads and, and upper torso. And then, sure, the feet and the rest of the body will follow. Um, and sometimes, as you say, the torso has to be turned toward the group because the way the room's laid out or the way the seating is set up or something. Um, and then the, the feet can be a, a counter clue. But the simplest place to look is with the head. It's very hard for us to disguise disguise that um, reaction of either liking or loathing in terms of where we position our head. Think of, I mean, a, a very simple example is a bad smell, for example. If you if something suddenly smells bad, then what do you do? You pull your head away from it <laughs> just because you, you can't help yourself. And, and the same thing goes with uh, other people and, and conversations and, that we're into or not into. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. What, one of the things that came to mind as you're talking about that is that sometimes I found that clients, even if I'm, I'm working with somebody and we're out in some type of social situation and they want to be in a conversation, but they're dealing with their own internal dialogue or anxieties, they'll react to those anxieties or issues and then they'll start subcommunicating disinterest and they don't even realize they're doing it. And I think that has to, well, that's sort of consistent with this idea of intentional communication. How does somebody prevent themselves from doing that? Well, the first step is to become aware of your body language in those kind of situations. And I always tell people, start with safe situations. So start with somebody you're comfortable with, friendship, um, significant other, if you have one. And just notice casual conversation and casual uh, relationships and, and see what you do. Um, body language is always two things at once. And, and this, is, this is a really important thing to understand. On the one hand, it's how you're feeling in that moment and how you're reacting to the situation and what other people say and so on as we've been talking. The other thing it is, is your history. And until you become aware of what that is, you're not going to be able to work on your basic body language. Let me give you a quick example. So I worked with a with an executive uh, a couple years ago who called me up and he said, uh, Nick, I've got my dream job. 25 years I've been working at the same company. How unusual is that? And 
I've been promoted up through the ranks because I was cool in the crisis. And I finally got to be the senior vice president, which was the job I wanted all these years. And I said, congratulations. He said, yeah, thanks. They're about to fire me. And I said, why? And he said, because cool in a crisis now looks like I don't care about the employees. And at the SVP level, I have to be emotional. I have to look like I care about them. And I have to lead people and inspire them and motivate them. And I don't know how to do that. For 25 years, I've been promoted because I was cool in a crisis. I've been squelching my emotions. Can you help me? So I said, sure. And he came came to uh, our offices in Boston. And, and he did something really, really strange. We have a standard uh, conference room. All your listeners have seen these sort of things, I'm sure. Um, room that can hold about 20 people or so. And it's got a, one of those long, wooden, brown conference room tables in the middle uh, with chairs all around it. And the vast majority of executives that I work with either have been trained or they know to sit in the center of that of that table with their back to the wall and their face to the door. That's the power position or the most powerful position in that room. There are other lesser positions, but that's the most powerful one. He did something nobody else has ever done before or since. He went and sat in the corner at the far corner of the conference room table. So I had to move down opposite him and then his Imagine an executive, senior vice president, his shoulders are slumped forward, his head is facing down, he's not making eye contact. For an hour I'm talking with him this way and I'm trying to get his eyes, I'm, I'm trying to catch his eye contact and I can't get it. And finally I call him on it and I say, what's going on? You, you say you want to be an SVP, that's a public position in a publicly traded company. You're, you're a spokesperson at one level for this company and yet all your body language suggests you want to be invisible. What's going on? And to my astonishment, he started crying. And he said, I haven't thought about this in years, but when I was age 12 to 18, I was bullied. And I guess I learned to be invisible. And it was the word invisible that triggered him. Nobody had ever accused him of trying to be invisible before. And that's how he actually thought about what he had gone through as a kid. He tried to be invisible. And what he didn't realize was he was still carrying around that body language from 30 years, 35 years before. And so all of us have a history that we carry around and the current emotion. And becoming an intentional communicator is taking stock of your body language and saying, okay, how do I face the world? Am I confident? Do I lack confidence? Um, am I arrogant? Am I humble? I mean, there's a whole range of possible ways in which you can face the world. Um, and what does that have to do with my history and how do I want to be now? Because I can take charge of how I'm showing up now. Um, but to understand what I need to do to show up the way I want to, I need to know where my history is and I need to know how I'm feeling now, both those things. And so that's where you start to become an intentional communicator. That's an absolutely awesome story. It made me think recently I was working with a guy and he was telling me that he had gone on a date and when he'd been working with me uh, for a few months already, but he had gone on a date and a woman went to touch his arm and he flinched. And you can bet she would have picked up on that. <laughs> she did. She, well, she said, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And so in the past, he would have missed it. Probably he would have missed the subtle, more nuanced reaction where she pulls back or stiffens up or shifts her weight. He would have missed those things. But because he'd been working with me and because she verbalized it, those two things, he had that, yeah, yeah, that increased awareness. And he goes, I said, well, why did you flinch? And he said, I think because my mom used to hit me all the time when I was growing up. And so oh I just, I don't feel comfortable with, with touch. I, I talked to my sister about it. She's the same way, but as a reaction, 
to physical touch. He goes, my dad didn't really touch me. He's like, we still don't touch. We work together. We have like no physical contact and never really have. And my mom, the only time she touched me growing up, it let I remember she was, it was like when she was hitting me, which was all the time. She had, she goes, she had these crazy rules, like stand in the driveway and don't walk outside this box. And, and uh, otherwise I'd get hit. So she, he goes, I, I was reacting to sort of this early programming essentially what he did is he gave this girl a signal that he wasn't interested, even though he might, might've been. And so hearing you say that, I, f- I find that really interesting because it's something that I just encountered recently and it's something that I've encountered in the past. And so. Yeah. And your example is a great one because what it shows is precisely why you need to be intentional as a communicator. So you, your guy had this whole history and if the woman that he was uh, trying to date had understood that whole history in advance, she would be sympathetic. Maybe she wouldn't try to touch him or maybe she would do it in a very gentle and slow way and kind of warn him that it was coming or whatever. Um, and so they could work through it. But um, not knowing that history, we tend to read body language as it is intended toward us. Our assumption is that the body language that you're uh, indicating, in this case the flinch, means something to me. And so she reads that as some kind of rejection of her. Now, he doesn't intend it that way, but it doesn't matter because we always read body language. We don't, we don't actually care so much about the body language itself. What we care about is the intention behind it. And for survival reasons, we've learned to ascribe intention to body language so that we can react quickly. We don't sit there and think, hmm, this person just flinched. I wonder what that means. Could they have a long history of abuse by their mother or, or does uh, he just not like me? And, and no, we don't do that. We just go, oh, he doesn't like me. We go right to the intention. Yeah, that, that makes absolute sense, right? Because the first thing you're going to think is it's a rejection of myself, right? So if, so if somebody is doing that and they've become aware and they realize, oh my God, I just I just flinched. There's some type of feedback uh, in this case, whether it's nonverbal or verbal and, and they're aware enough to recognize it, but they realize they've already done it. What should they do next if they want to try to salvage that interaction? Or can they do anything? It's very hard to get over that flinch. Um, you can apologize and explain. Uh, you can wear a sign that says, I was abused as a kid, so please understand. And I don't think that will help much, but uh, uh, <laughs> the, the main thing you can do, seriously, is start to work on your body language to open it up and not to, not to close off. And so the, the place I suggest people start is with the intention of being open. And uh, let me describe as best I can um, on a recording what this means. You can't see me in person, but imagine um, I'm standing up and my hands are clasped uh, over my stomach, uh, interlocked together. The hands are interlocked together. And now imagine that I bring my hands out to about uh, three or four feet apart. So I've opened them up and they're about waist high um, and now my torso is exposed. So that's an open position. And what happens is, if I start with an open position, then not only do I signal to the other person that I'm more open, but I also signal to myself that I'm more open. And I work with people as on public speaking all the time about this, and I'll say, go out there and stand in front of that audience with your hands open in the way I've described. So about waist high, um, just just sort of past your hips uh, held out to the audience. Um, and tell me how it feels. 
and they'll say, well, it feels kind of unnatural. It feels exposed. And I'll say, yes. But from the point of view of the audience, it looks like you intend to be open to them. They will get a sense that they can trust you, that you are comfortable, that you are open. And what's more, you will leak that emotion to them and to yourself. And so gradually over time, you and the audience will become more comfortable with one another. And so it takes an intentional act at first of opening up that body language. But once you start to do it, it will have this virtuous uh, circle and it will start to uh, just start to give you feelings of of openness and, and comfort and as well as the other person. And, and so you should get some kind of mirror effect. But it's not easy to do at first because that first step is, the, is of course, the hardest one. But I, di I did a little experiment when I was at Harvard with uh, with a series of mid-career fellows. So these are very, uh, at the Kennedy School, these are very sophisticated uh, politicians and business people from all over the world, and they come back to get this master's in, in uh, public administration of some kind at Harvard. And, and, and so these aren't uh, teenagers or, or uh, college students. Um, these are people in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And I challenged them all to, um, to work on their body language in a way that would not be obvious to the, to the audience. They were each other's best audience, uh, but would be uh, uh, interesting for them in, this, in the following way. So I would have somebody stand up and give an introduction. So they would just talk for 60 seconds about themselves to the rest of the group. Um, and then I would draw them aside and coach them in some body language. And so for example, one person I said, after he gave his first introduction, I said, give exactly the same introduction, word for word if you can, but this time what I want you to do is open your body language in the way I described just now. Uh, and so he did that, and the second introduction was completely different from the first, even though I'd instructed him to give the same one. The first one was very matter-of-fact. It was just like reading a resume. He had done this, this, and this. It was very boring. The audience gave him polite applause. The second time, after he'd opened up his body language, he said, I was a uh, soldier in the Iraq war, um, and during that time, I saw some horrific things done to children that never should be done anywhere. Children should be safe. They should grow up in peace and happiness and stability. And so I decided to dedicate my life to helping that happen, and now I work with children in war zones. Completely different introduction, but because he'd op opened up his body language, that sent a signal to his mind that it was okay for him to talk about the thing that was really close to his heart rather than the safe introduction. So it was, we saw that over and over again in this set of, of experiments, and, and they really got the message. That body language not only affects how other people read your intent, but it also affects how you feel about yourself. One of the things that I found is when people feel uncomfortable, they contract, whether it's emotionally or physically, their body language. Um, and when they're comfortable, they expand. And that, that could be verbally, it could be emotionally. One of the things that I find fascinating about what you're saying is that, that there is sort of this bravery that's involved with making yourself vulnerable when you are putting yourself out there, right? And whether it's speaking on a stage or shaking someone's hand for the first time and sort of that point of friction is sort of interesting to me, right? Because there's, you're like, I, I want you to open up your body language when you do this particular behavior and somebody can start to feel sort of that point of friction because really, I mean, from my perspective, they're making themselves more vulnerable than they normally feel comfortable. 
No, absolutely. At first, it feels very vulnerable to to open up. Um, there's no question. And in, in in my world of public speaking, that's exactly how you feel. You're standing on a stage, and you've got a hundred pairs of eyes, five hundred pairs of eyes, thousands of pairs of eyes on you. You feel exposed. You feel like they're all looking at you and thinking um, critical thoughts, uh, whatever they are. And so, it is very difficult at that point to open up. So I give my coaches huge marks for courage if they can manage to do it. But what I tell them is it will then be transformational if you can, if you can manage to open up because uh, that feeling of comfort that you're telegraphing to the audience, then they will shoot right back to you uh, with everybody's mirror neurons firing on uh, in, in this open, trusting way. And when I give a speech about body language, I'll often start for the first five minutes I will stand center stage, not moving, and I'll have my hands um, in that open position I was describing at my sides, open to the audience. And I won't move for five minutes. And then when I get into that part of the discussion, it's about 20 minutes into the talk, I'll say, does anybody remember the opening gesture I started this talk with? And I'll say, I held the position for five minutes. Surely one of you noticed it. Nobody ever has noticed, could remember that bit of body language, even though I held it without moving for five minutes. And the reason, again, is that we care about intent. Um, we care about the feeling behind that body language. We don't care about the body language, per se. And so the audience never remembers, gosh, he stood there like a stone figure for five minutes with his arms open. What was that about? They think, oh, he's just this nice, trustworthy, comfortable guy. You've talked a little bit about these mirror neurons. So what is that process like, right? Because a couple of things come to my mind. One is that I noticed when we're, we're out and people are interacting, as soon as they start to feel comfortable, they generally start mirroring each other. Yes. And that has some type of emotional impact on the interaction. But also some situations you can't really mirror someone, right? Like if you're sitting in a chair and you're an audience of 500 people and there's one person on stage and they're standing up or walking around, you're not going to physically mirror them, but I guess you're cognitively mirroring them? Or what exactly is happening here? Yeah, so that's really interesting. And I've got about four good answers for that. The most interesting is a little complicated, so maybe we'll get into that. That has to do with the voice. But the shorter answers are that uh, the speaker can mirror the audience by going into the audience and turning around, for example, and facing the same way. So aligning his or herself with the audience. So that's a trick we use, a uh, body language trick we use when we're trying to build a strong connection with the audience. The other thing you can do is bring the an audience member up on stage with you and then mirror that audience member's behavior. And because the whole audience tends to identify with the one poor victim up there on stage, then uh, you will, in that way, mirror the audience to a certain extent. But let's make a quick distinction here that's really important. So there's mirroring, which is what you're talking about, which means um, doing the same gesture, basically, standing the same way, aligning your body in the same way, maybe moving your hand in the same way when the other person moves his or her hand. Mirror neurons now are something slightly different, although it's all part of the same psychological complex, if you will. Um, mirror neurons are the way we humans share each other's emotions. So if I walk into a room and I'm angry about something or I'm happy about something, then 
what happens is the other people in the room, especially if it's a strong emotion, they have neurons that will fire the same emotion in their heads. Now, this happens before they make any movement to either align themselves with me to mirror my behavior uh, or not. This is a purely a mental thing. And it happens almost instantaneously. It happens in milliseconds. And so that's the, that's the key thing to understand. That was a, a finding by a team of uh, Italian neuros, uh, neuroscientists uh, about a decade ago. Uh, and it started this whole revolution in understanding how the brain actually works. We used to think, as I say, we were kind of loners, we humans. But now we understand better that we're actually communal beings. It's why we still go to rock concerts and, and political events and sporting events, even though it's arguably better to sit home and watch it on your on your sofa and see the instant replay. Um, it's because we like to share those strong emotions of a crowd that's carried away with excitement because their team is winning or or they're seeing their favorite rock star or they're hearing their favorite politician. Or dancing in a group. Or dancing in a group, exactly. We love that kind of group behavior. And and we don't we don't talk about it in society in that way. So we don't really understand why that's the case and why we get carried away with that. But that is actually how we're wired. We prefer that. We prefer the state of being in communion with a group of people. And I'm assuming that's because humans are more likely to survive when they're in groups? Exactly. If you, if you think about uh, ancient humans, we were a pretty flimsy little creature in the food chain. right? We were at the top of the food chain, maybe in terms of brains and that kind of thing. But along comes a tiger or a lion, one swipe of the paw, and we're meat. So our physique is not all that strong um, and in those terms. And so uh, we achieved our success, our survival success on the planet by being able to work together in groups. Uh, you know, one person could not bring down a woolly mammoth, but a, tr a team of 20 uh, people working with spears and fire and whatever else they had uh, at their disposal can bring down a woolly mammoth. They can feed the tribe for weeks. One of the things I was thinking when you were talking about that is sometimes when we teach empathy at Craft Charisma, we'll talk a little bit about um, sort of body language and mirroring and paying attention to how we feel. Because one of the things that I've observed through coaching and through myself is that if I was very open emotionally and I was mirroring somebody's body language, I could start to feel feelings that were very similar to what they were feeling if I asked them because there seemed to be this correlation between certain types of body language and the way that we feel right so like when you're smiling you're generally feeling happy and that they probably are feeling a similar emotion or if my arms are crossed or somebody else's arms are crossed i cross my arms and i'm paying attention i'm really aware i find that i can feel the type of feelings that like i would associate last time i crossed my arms and i might not know why they're closing their arms Maybe it's because they're cold or maybe it's because they're uncomfortable or maybe, but I can start to feel those emotions. And there's a lot of really valuable information that can be sort of derived from that when you're interacting with people about how they're feeling based on sort of this openness. And so, so it was interesting because you talked about the connection and maybe I, I convoluted the two a little bit, but that was sort of where I was coming from. Have you experienced something similar in your research or in? Yeah, that's absolutely, that's absolutely right. The reason for it, it has to do with the neuroscience the way our brains work. So we tend to think of ourselves, and the neuroscientists like to say that uh, most, the average human, has a Mr. Spock theory of the brain. So we think we're logical beings. We think our conscious minds um, 
say to ourselves, okay, it's morning, go get your cup of coffee. Um, and so I, the, the Nick inside my head, the one that I talk to or that talks to me, tells me to go get coffee and drink it and then I'll be awake. Okay. What actually happens is we get an unconscious thought, wish, or desire. My unconscious mind tells me, oh, Nick, time for caffeine. Um, and then I embody that. Then I start to move toward the coffee machine. And only after that do I become consciously aware of it. Now, the delay is typically milliseconds, but it can be as long as nine seconds. The, the longest neuroscientists have found is you can make a decision in your unconscious mind, yeah, I want to do that, or yes, I, uh, no, I don't want to do that. Um, and then you cannot be aware of it for as long as nine seconds consciously. So we have this big, huge, vast, enormous, unconscious mind that does most of the things that we need to do to stay alive. And some of the obvious ones are like keeping your heart beating, so you don't have to think about it. Imagine how t tiresome that would be if with your conscious mind you had to think, okay, heart, beat, 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 I mean, um, and breathing and all those kind of simple autonomic things. You don't want to be thinking about those things. But what's a little stranger is that our bodies, we evolved for our unconscious minds to make decisions for us. And we think we make decisions logically. We add up the pros and cons and we go, yeah, I'll date that person. Um, but what actually happens is our unconscious mind decides, yeah, I want that person. I want to date her or him. And then we start to embody it, literally. We move toward that person or we move to take the action to call the person on the phone or whatever. Uh, and then only after that do we become consciously aware of it. And so when we start to notice behavior or we mirror people with uh, certain kinds of behavior or, as you say, you see somebody else crossing their arms, you cross their arms, you start to feel how they feel. Yes, absolutely. And the reason for that is because your mind knows that it is embodying, your body is embodying that feeling. Um, and that's what comes first. That's the clue to us as to how we feel. Now, this is counterintuitive. Some people have a hard time understanding because they think, no, my mind is in charge here. I know when I'm thirsty. I know when I'm tired. I know when I decide to date somebody or buy a car or buy a house or whatever. But that's not the way it works. Our unconscious minds can handle something like 40 million bits of information a second. Sorry, 11 million bits of information a second. Get my numbers mixed up. The conscious mind can only handle about 40 so it's 11 million bits of information a second that your unconscious mind is processing. Um, and that includes most of the things, as I say, like heartbeat and that kind of stuff uh, that you don't want to think about. But it also includes decision making. Your conscious mind is playing catch up all the time at 40 bits of information a second. It can barely keep you walking and talking and chewing gum at the same time. Uh, and so it's always playing catch up and the, and you're always figuring out afterwards, oh yeah, that's what I want or oh, that's what I decided. Now, the mind edits out that feeling of the delay. So you're not consciously aware of it, but it's there nonetheless and the neuroscientists have measured it. And so it's just a good thing to know that um, watch your body because your body is telling you what you've already decided, how you feel. It's right. Don't pay attention to it. And you can lead it, as I say, by taking, deciding to take a deliberately open gesture in order to improve an interaction or to be an, uh, a speaker with intent or to connect with somebody positively. But you should also spend some time just noticing what your body is telling you in a situation. Am I happy in this situation? Your body will let you know, and it's right.
this is all great stuff. It made me think of I was in Puerto Rico um, about a year and a half ago, and I was I climbed up the top of the hill, and I was trying to take this picture of this fort. And right as I got to the perfect position to take a picture of the cemetery and the fort in the background and the mood above it, I stepped on a, a nail <laughs> and <laughs> it went right through my shoe, but just barely pinched my skin and I jumped up and my body was reacting before I could articulate what it is that was happening. Right. If I would have said, if I would have stepped on it and said, Oh, I'm stepping on a nail. I could potentially get hurt. If my brain tried to articulate that before I reacted, then my foot would have probably been a lot worse case than it actually was. I still had to go get a tetanus shot, but um, so that would make sense, right? Because that's your body keeping you alive. Exactly. Yeah, it's, pr it's protecting. And whether it's protecting or running some of these systems that our body seems to automate, like breathing and, and our heartbeat. Like The, the other thing that uh, came up or I was thinking about was, yeah, just the overwhelmingness of trying to try to process all this information. We should have articulated it. It would just make sense that it would be overwhelming. Yeah, sure. If you had to decide every step of the way, hmm, I'm going to take another step now. Hmm, I'm going to, while I do that, I'm going to breathe a little bit and my heart's going to keep beating and I'm going to focus uh, at about six feet ahead and now I'm going to look at the ground. I mean, if you literally thought about everything that you're doing as you did it, um, you would not be able to do anything else. And of course, we humans have lots of higher order things that we want to do. So um, that's why I always tell people, trust your body. Your body's uh, uh, got your best interests in mind. And it, on the whole, it works pretty well. With the one proviso, your example earlier is a beautiful one of the fellow who wanted to presumably go on a date with his woman, but he flinched when she touched his arm. There, his history has taught him one thing. That was smart survival tactics when he was a kid to protect him from the dangerous situation his mother was putting him in. But now it's not so helpful because he wants to uh, form a different relationship. And so... Um, pay attention to your body. Your body is telling you important stuff, but then also understand your history so that you can decide, okay, yeah, that's what my body is telling me and that's where it came from, but I want to change because I want a different kind of relationship now. And so you, for the body to be open to that, you sometimes have to step in, you, your conscious mind, and say, yeah, that's, what it, that's the history it learned. Now it's time to learn something different. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website, Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I think that's an absolutely very important point. I also started thinking about just the idea of drifting towards opportunity. When people feel safe, I said that they expand, but they also tend to be more likely to drift towards an opportunity. So 
that might be somebody who is walking through the grocery store and they see someone they're attracted to and they end up going down the cereal aisle because they want to get close to them as opposed or maybe it's uh your executive you're describing putting themselves in a situation where they can be seen and sort of being brave about overcoming that judgment right because so many people i found that a lot of times people if they don't feel safe they have a hard time with judgment and or the perception of judgment and so in the, in the example you used it's a, a room full of people looking at them whether it's a table full of people or he wants to be invisible because he from or at least from my experience because he's worried that it's a threat if people are aware of uh, his presence right and so if he felt safer he's more likely to sort of take risks or let himself drift towards sort of opportunities, right? So the opportunity to lead, the opportunity to get close to someone they're interested. Yeah, that's a really nice way of nice way of putting it. If if you don't feel safe or if you don't feel like you can open up in that situation, then you're going to miss out on things that otherwise might be good. Um, you're, you're, yes, you're going to stay safe, but you're also going to miss out on the things that you might want to uh, move toward uh, because your instinct is is uh, just to play it so safe that you're never open to new possibilities. And and as humans, we got to do both. We got to be safe. We got to keep ourselves alive, but we also have to be open to new possibilities. I want to talk a little bit about your books. You wrote you wrote a book on called Trust Me, and you wrote a book on power cues. Can you talk about how those two books are similar and different? Yeah, sure. So uh, Trust Me is about the content, the rhetorical ways to connect with audiences and the body language ways to connect with audiences. So it's specifically about public speaking, uh, although there's some spillover into meetings and business situations and conversations, that kind of thing. But it's specifically about how to give a better speech by designing content that connects and moves audiences and then uh, aligning your body language in that way. What Power Cues is about is uh, is really about the neuroscience of human communication. Uh, and I mentioned earlier the neuroscience of the voice uh, without getting into the detail. And that's that's chapter four. That's, that's how I sold the book. <laughs> and uh, that's why I wrote it is because I was having lunch with my uh, literary agent and he said, Nick, time to write another book. You got anything new? And I started telling him about this uh, research on the voice and he was astounded. And he said, that's amazing. You've got to write a book about that. So Power Cues is about the... Uh, seven power cues, as we ended up calling them. Uh, these are um, the ways in which your neuroscience drives you to communicate either successfully or unsuccessfully with people. And uh, if we have time, I can try to briefly describe the vocal thing because that's so amazing. I would love you to do that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, it starts with uh, a research done by the couple of Canadian researchers on the uh, Obama-McCain debates for the uh, election that was uh, between then-candidate Obama and, and John McCain. And there were three debates, and generally speaking, McCain was considered to have won the first two. Obama was considered to have won the third, and after the first two, the polls were all in McCain's favor. Uh, it's hard to remember now because we're used to the idea that Obama was president for eight years, but uh, McCain was in, ahead in the polls. And then after the third one, something happened. Everybody said Obama suddenly grew assertive or, or something like that. Um, and he was generally considered to have won the third debate, and the polls moved in his favor, and he went on to win the election. 
So that's where the researchers started. They said, I wonder if there's something in the voice that signals this or affects this in some way. So they analyzed the vocal patterns of both Obama and McCain, and they found something that's truly extraordinary. So to understand this, you, you have to understand uh, this other amazing thing that humans can do, which your listeners have probably never thought about before, but they're all expert at, which is you can instantly identify a couple hundred voices without thinking about it. So if you think about your friends, your family, your work colleagues, some famous people, President Obama, John McCain, um, President Trump, um, you can identify those voices. You don't have to think to yourself, hmm, that voice is kind of scratchy or it's high or it's low or it has these qualities, therefore it must be President Obama's voice. You just go, oh, that's Obama. Or, oh, that's my mom. Or, oh, that's my dad. Uh, and so uh, that's an extraordinary ability. And the, the question is, how do you do that? And the answer is um, easier to understand if you're a musician. Musicians talk about the timbre of certain instruments. So a guitar, a plucked string on a guitar has a timbre. That means it has a quality of sound. It sounds like a guitar. That same note, let's say it's middle C, you play on a guitar, sounds very different if you play it on a piano. You can instantly tell, oh, that's a piano, not a guitar. And it's a trump, or it's a trumpet, or it's a saxophone. So that's what we call timbre. It turns out human voices have the same thing. They have timbre. That is, each voice is different. They're like fingerprints. Six billion people in the world, and apparently they're all, all the voices are different. Although they say there occasionally there's a repeat with the fingerprints. So maybe there's occasionally a, reprint with a, a repeat with the voice, but you know, mostly everybody's different, which is how we can tell them apart. And what we do is our unconscious minds instantly analyze the quality of that sound that the person's voice is making and, and go, yeah, that's mom, or yeah, that's my work colleague. Now, it turns out that it's the undertones of the voice. So uh, if I speak, I speak at a certain note, you could match that note on a piano or a guitar. But what gives the voice its quality that allows you to tell it apart from anybody else's is undertones that are not you're not consciously aware of and the overtones that are wrapped around that bass note. Okay, so as I said, this is a little complicated. So what they did was they recorded or they analyzed Obama uh, and McCain's voices on an oscilloscope, which showed the undertones and overtones and the basic pitch of the voice. So what you get on the oscilloscope is a sort of fuzzy-looking line, lots of undertones, the basic note, strongest, and then lots of overtones. Now, here's the fantastic thing. It turns out when we get together with a group of people, we unconsciously elect a leader in the room, and we match our undertones to the leader's undertones. We literally get on the same wavelength. And so what was happening in the first two debates was Obama was matching his undertones to McCain. He was unconsciously signaling that he thought McCain was the leader in the room, not him. And the uh, listeners agreed with him, and McCain was ahead in the polls. Well, on the third debate, then, for some reason, Obama at that point decided, no, I'm going to be president. Gosh darn it. And so he sent out stronger undertones. McCain got the message, aligned his undertones to Obama's, and Obama clearly won that debate and went on to win the election. 
So something extraordinary happens. We put out these undertones that we're not consciously aware of that affect the tone of voice. And it turns out that um, the strongest undertones come from a, our voice when it's at a certain register, a certain pitch within our vocal ranges. Again, this is easier for musicians and singers to understand than non-singers. But everybody can understand that you have a vocal range. There is a low note you can hit, the lowest note you can hit, and a high note you can hit. And we talk about how some singers, some professional singers, have an amazing range and they can go five octaves or something like that, some incredible. Beyonce apparently has a five octave range, right? Um, most of us have about a 12 to 16 note, about a two octave range. Now it turns out um, that at the low end of that range, we sound strongest, most comfortable, most authoritative. At the high end of the range, we sound stressed out, frightened, passionate. Um, and so what happens is when we meet somebody and we're nervous, that squeezes our vocal cords, pushes our voice up a little bit, gets us putting out not very strong undertones, and so our voice sounds kind of squeezed and nervous. Um, and we pick up, people pick up on that unconsciously, and that adds to this feeling. In fact, it's the most important aspect in many ways, um, in addition to the body language of how somebody's feeling in the room and the vibes they send out and whether people are comfortable with this or not. Now, we can all understand this intuitively in the sense that my favorite example is because of cell phones, there are a lot of people, say, in New York City now walking across busy intersections with their head down, looking at their phone, not looking at traffic, right? And so imagine a person behind them sees a car is coming and shouts, watch out, to that person whose head is down into the cell phone. What does that person do? Tense up. Tenses up, reacts, whatnot. Even though they've never heard that stranger's voice before, they know that stranger is frightened because the stranger's voice gets tense and goes way up in his or her register. We can hear that. We are hardwired to hear that so instantly that we react in time to save our lives. And so at a very basic level, if I speak down here at the sort of bottom end of my range, I sound confident, I sound strong. If I suddenly go, watch out, you know, my voice goes way up um, and you can hear the tension in it. And so on a much subtler level, that's one of the ways and one of the most important ways in which we signal our nervousness or discomfort in a situation. Our voice just gets a little squeezed. Our vocal cords, thanks to adrenaline and the, and the fight or flight reaction, moves, uh, squeezes our vocal cords, moves up just a little bit. Our voice gets a little pinched, a little tense, and other people hear that. Not consciously. They don't think, hmm, voice is sounding a little high in this guy. Maybe he's a little nervous. No, they just unconsciously think, hmm, danger in the room. And so the whole, the whole issue of the voice is extremely important for controlling and becoming an intentional speaker, an intentional communicator uh, for interacting, especially with people uh, that you're meeting for the first time. Uh, you want to make sure your voice is in the proper register for you to sound most confident and authoritative. We've definitely experienced this coaching. You take some, we take somebody out into a social situation. We have them approach somebody and they're, pitch rises because they feel nervous. The other thing that we've noticed is they'll do things like speed up the words, right? Because they're, they're worried that if they don't get everything out, that the person's going to walk away versus somebody who feels like they have power within a group or they're sort of grounded within a group. They have a tendency to speak a lot slower because they don't think people are going to walk away. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, that's why it's so powerful when I'm working with speakers, to, I'll say build in some pauses because um, there's lots of research that shows that powerful people tend to talk slower 
um, than than people who lack power, and for exactly the reason you're describing. Um, and so one of the ways to assert a little authority in a room is to build in some pauses into what you're saying. In effect, you're making other people wait for you, <laughs> and that's and that's kind of a power play. But it's a subtle one. It's it's, it's enough. It's subtle enough that people aren't annoyed by it. They just they just find you interesting. But as you say, if you're rushing to get through, then that shows a lack of confidence and a lack of belief that other people will take the time to listen to you. What are some of the other power cues that you picked up while writing your book? Well, I talked about the open and, and closed uh, aspects of the gestures. So hand gestures are, are one thing. Um, my other favorite aspect of hand gestures is, so I talked about moving your hands horizontally from a clutched position in front of your torso to being open, and that sends out a nice message of openness. The other thing you can do is move your hands vertically to signal the level of urgency in the communication and the level of tension in the room. This is one of my favorite ones uh, because it's so subtle nobody ever notices it, but you can get people to pay attention simply by raising your hands. And let me try to describe again without having the visual, it's a little hard, but imagine a, uh, if you're a soldier standing with his or her hands down sort of mid-thigh at attention, okay? So your hands are there as low as they can go, just hanging down at your sides. Now, if I bring them up to about waist high on either side of my body, then I'm saying, okay, conversational level, we're moderately engaged here, nothing too exciting. If I keep bringing my hands up so that they're about opposite my ears, then what I'm saying is this is really important. You've got to pay attention. And then if I bring my hands the rest of the way up so that my arms are straight and held over my head, then we're at Mick Jagger level. This is rock concert, fist pumping, total excitement. I'm carried away. This is awesome, right? And so you get to control the way that your message is received by people um, who, who can see you. Um, by where you place your hands vertically on either side of your body. So that's another uh, power cue. It's a way, as I say, of getting people to pay attention. And then we also we also talk about motion, but that's something you and I have talked about beforehand. We tend to move toward things that we like and away from things uh, that we don't like. And so you can use the space between people as a way of controlling the uh, tempo and the and the positive or negative aspect of the interaction. Well, we talk about traction. Um, as a perception of value, when people perceive something or someone as being valuable, first they look at it, then they try to move closer to it, then often they try to touch it, and then they try to hold it. Yeah, and back to Mick Jagger, imagine a rock star being mobbed. You know, the first thing you do is you spot them, then you start to moving toward them, and then and then you're all over them, right? <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, it's classic. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing I found interesting about the names of those two books, Trust Me and Power Cues, is for us. We talk about attraction comfort from a, a relationship perspective, right? So when we talk about comfort, we essentially teach whether it's your body language, uh, you're doing this verbally through tone or inflection or rate of speech, pitch, uh, or the words that you're saying, or even the way you dress, who you're interacting with, what environment you're in. Um, there's, I mean, different ways that we communicate. First, usually start with body language, voice, and what someone's saying because I can control those or I can get somebody a new outfit. But I, I find that these are like they're really important. But when we talk about these things, we say when someone's comfortable around you, when you're communicating with them in a way they feel comfortable around you, they'll allow you to get close to them. Yes. Otherwise, they tense up or pull away. And then when they perceive you as being valuable or they're attracted to you, they will try to get close to you. Yeah. And so I found it really interesting because you wrote a book, whether it's on, I mean, on speaking 
So trust me, how do you pull people close to you to a certain extent? And power cues is sort of the, this perception of value. How do you get them to perceive you as being valuable? And and uh, we find like sort of a very similar parallel. Yeah, it's exactly the same body language works uh, for most of what I'm writing about are, uh, are public speaking or business situations. You're writing about the dating scene, but it's the same body language. We humans are wired the same way, whether we're in a business meeting or whether we're trying to uh, flirt with somebody. Uh, it's the same same basic uh, signals that people are sending out. Uh, and you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's all about closeness, uh, mirroring, and openness. Those are the sort of keys to uh, uh, to making a strong positive connection with somebody. And you're also right, you can't force it. Um, if the other person keeps backing up as you keep closing in, then you need to get the message <laughs> and uh, realize that it's not working, whatever you're doing. It won't always work. You can't, you can't control every situation. And it also goes back to awareness, right? So we talked about that earlier in, in this interview because sometimes people are just not ready, right? Like the guy, I used the example of the guy flinching um, or you use the example of uh, the executive sitting in the corner. I mean, at some point, my assumption is he wanted to work through those issues at some point, be this person that he's imagined he would become for years. And yeah, he just didn't know how. Yeah. Yeah. So some people are just not, they're not quite ready and they just, they need to feel more comfortable before they'll open up. Uh, or sometimes people are going through a situation where they need more time so that they'll open up. And, and uh, that situation is about creating that opportunity for yourself or creating that opportunity for them. Yeah, exactly. That that's one of the other power cues is uh, is learning to read other people so that you uh, get the right signals from them and and know when when it's appropriate to uh, to move closer and when it isn't at a very simple level. Do you mind talking about a few of those cues and then I want to talk to you about your new book because I find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah, sure. So the basically, I start from the position of okay. So imagine you were in a room. And again, I typically use business settings. So imagine you're in a room with a dozen business colleagues and you're trying to read everybody in the room. You're trying to know who the most powerful person is. You're trying, you're negotiating something, let's say, and you're trying to figure out who's on your side, who's against your position. Um, if you spend the whole time trying to analyze every single twitch from everybody around that room, you're going to go crazy. It's way too much information. And, and so the, the power cue, uh, that I have people work on there, which takes uh, a little time to develop, is to start to trust your other senses. Uh, one of the things it turns out we do, for example, um, and we're used to thinking of five senses, sight, uh, touch, hearing, smells, and so on, um, but we actually have more than five senses. And one of them that we have is that we constantly, unconsciously measure um, and locate the physical position of everybody in the room that we, that's within viewing distance of us. This is why, by the way, most people find a cocktail parties so tiring <laughs> because you've got a lot of people kind of milling around. And so it takes a lot of work from your unconscious mind to, uh, to keep track of them all. And we, but we do this for even people who are behind us that we can't see. And the way we do it is we notice subtle differences in the way the air is moving and that kind of, we've all got that feeling when somebody approaches us from behind or the prickling in the back of the neck. You know, we, we have this sense. We're just not very aware of it. It's a very subtle one. Um, and so what I tell people to do in that situation in the business setting of trying to, rather than trying to consciously monitor everybody in the room, just put yourself in the position of being open and listen, starting to listen to that other sense so that your body is already tracking where everybody is in that room. That means they're tracking whether somebody is moving 
very slightly toward you or away from you. And so if you want to know how that negotiation is going, if you work on that sense and if you practice it and just kind of relax your mind and just open it to that feeling, you can strengthen it to the point where you can start to notice very subtle differences and you can go, oh, that guy sitting over there, no, nah, he's not with me. He's pulling back just slightly. Um, and so it's about developing that sense. This is not simple and it takes some time. It takes some work and practice. But if it's important enough to you, it's worth doing. Uh, and so that's... Uh, that's that other power cue is about starting to read other people in the room in these basic ways. So, like, are they for me or against me? Who's the most powerful person in the room here? Are they friend or foe? The basic questions. The mind is already doing that work anyway, just doing it at the unconscious level. So it's about making the unconscious conscious, and you can do that with effort, with work. So just, again, it goes back to awareness, not letting yourself be controlled by your anxieties and sort of quieting your mind. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's all about being present in the end, about being present to what's going on around you. And rather than worrying so much about, oh, am I safe? Am I safe? It's about opening up and, and saying, just note what's going on around you. And what are those people saying with their bodies? Because they say things with their bodies first um, and sometimes a long time before they say it with their uh, with their content. I have one other question that I want to get into the new book. How does somebody work up to that? Because I, I found that I use the example of the, how we might teach empathy. And I find like if I'm not open on a New York subway, it's so over emotionally overwhelming. I find that I start breaking eye contact and start sort of moving away. It's it's hard because there's sort of so much when you're open and present in that way, there's so much sort of more stimulus. How, how does somebody work up into an environment where they feel sort of more comfortable? Because I mean, a New York subway might be kind of extreme. Yeah, it's pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Boston subways too, so <laughs> we call it we call it the T here, but it's the same thing. Um, my favorite example of this is uh, I worked with a woman who uh, was excruciatingly shy. Let's say just to put a simple word on it, and wanted to because it was holding her back. She's very very smart, and it was holding her back in business, uh, and and she wanted to become more confident, and be able to dominate a room. She felt she wasn't being listened to, and that kind of thing. And there was a whole series of uh, uh, body language things she was doing that was, was telegraphing her shyness and, and also it developed um, her lack of authority. So she would hierarchically rank herself lower in the room than anybody else. And, and that was holding her back because everybody else picked up on that unconsciously and thought, okay, she's a, she's a, the lowest person in the room. We don't need to pay attention to her. And so she, without being aware of it at first until she became aware of it was, was uh, signaling that, that she was a, of no account. And so people took her at her word, in essence, or at her body language signal. Um, and yet she was so shy that it was just, it was impossible for her at first to do anything about that in a room with a half a dozen other business colleagues. It was just impossible, she couldn't. And so we started actually with her dog. <laughs> her dog was the one person she was comfortable with. And so I got her to start practicing body language on her dog. And what's amazing about dogs is this doesn't work so well with cats. <laughs> But with dogs, they are very sensitive to emotions. And and so I just got her to work on being open with her dog. <laughs> and then we extended it to, uh, to, to cut a long story short, we, ex we extended it to um, her closest friends. She had a few close friends she was comfortable with, and, and she gradually got more uh, comfortable with them. But the, the real message there is start in low-key situations. When you're just sitting around and having a conversation, try practicing the body language, becoming aware of it. 
because there you're not worried about saying the wrong thing so much or, or making some faux pas. These people already know you and trust you. The relationship is pretty durable. Um, and so you can begin to practice the subtle bits of body language just to become aware of it at first and to begin noticing the other people's body language. And if you can do it in safe settings, then you can gradually build up to more stressful situations. So you just build up your capacity. Yeah, it takes practice and time. And it's about ultimately trusting your body. Your body embodies literally how you feel. Uh, and so it begins with starting to pay attention to that uh, and then begin to very gently control it and get it to send out the messages you want to send out. This is great. And it's super pertinent to a lot of listeners who are listening to this because of relationship stuff. I think it's very often that people go into a situation and they're subcommun, they're feeling nervous. Maybe it's because of their history or maybe it's because of their life situation or maybe it's because they never picked up these skill sets or never really mastered them. And so they meet someone they're romantically interested in and the person thinks of them as sort of being invisible because they don't feel safe enough to sort of express their full personality, right? To, so that, that happens, all, I mean, all the time to people who are listening to this. And we do actually get a lot of people from the shyness community, um, people who have social anxiety, in addition to sort of a lot of other people. And, and then we also, it made me also think of the situations where somebody embodies a lot of sort of very alpha-y characteristics and they might have these naturally or they pick them up in other spaces and, and bring them into their work environment. But their ideas might not be the best ideas. <laughs> they might not be the person who should be leading the group. And I mean, in those situations, it's so incredibly frustrating because you, like a, a person wants to sort of express their ideas and doesn't know how. So I think this is a really great pathway for someone who's ever felt like either of these situations um, I described or so many more that could potentially happen and want to develop this, this skill set and really be heard and taken seriously. I want to talk to you about your new book, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect in a Virtual World. Because we are living in this world of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and social media where we have these virtual lives. And you talked earlier about alignment in an, another context, but how does somebody communicate with intention or have congruency in, in this digital world. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, so I I got into this because when I go out to speak about communications and, or body language, um, the first question during the Q&A somebody would always ask was, so this Nick, this stuff is great. Remember, I'm in a business setting. This stuff is great, uh, but I work with a team that's based in Singapore and India and Europe and here in the U.S. Now that I know all this body language stuff is going on, how do I apply that in this virtual setting? I never see these people. We're on audio conferences once a week, right? How do I relate to them? Or we're on a video conference, maybe a little better. Um, but what's surprising is even the video conference, that's only two dimensions and it doesn't work as well as face-to-face. -face. So what do you do about that? And so I got asked this question over and over again. I finally decided time to look into the research and, and write a book. And what I found was much, much worse than I thought. <laughs> and it, no matter what the virtual arrangement is, uh, the virtual technique is, whether it's email or texting or Slack um, or uh, Zoom or, or Skype and some kind of video arrangement um, or, or audio conferences or webinars, all the paraphernalia of the business world, which we can't live without. I mean, that's the first thing to understand. We are stuck with this stuff. Uh, but especially since the mobile phone was invented and became widespread, it's essentially that's been a decade now 
It's this huge unregulated social experiment. We humans have evolved to communicate really, really well face to face. And even then, there's room for people like you and me to coach people to get them better at it, right? <laughs> um, uh, because not all of us are brilliant at it all the time. But then imagine, imagine if you added to that, you suddenly said, all right, I'm going to let you communicate in a whole host of new ways. But I'm going to take all that unconscious emotional connection out of it. Just going to strip it right out. How's that going to go? And what you find in Example after example is email. How many times have you sent an email and you got back the uh, or a text? Are you mad at me? And you go, no, I wasn't mad at you. Why do you think I was mad at you? Well, because you said, well, that was just a, I was just trying to get it done in a hurry. I, I didn't mean to be, you know. And you spend more time explaining that you weren't angry than you did the initial email. Uh, it takes 12 emails to unpack the, the trouble that you started with a single one, which you didn't intend. Or... The other favorite example is the is the uh, business audio conference and all the jokes and, and the lore and the stories about what people do while they're on the audio conference because they're so bored. Why? Because the telephone condenses. Remember, I talked about the voice before and how those undertones are so important to conveying leadership. It's the undertones that convey emotion, and so when you when you condense the audio signal as a as a telephone does, what happens is you cut out a lot of the emotions. Not all of it, but a lot of them. And so audio conferences are boring. People think of other things to do. They multitask. They go to the bathroom. They go shopping. They do all kinds of things, but they're not paying attention. Um, and it turns out, as I say, without getting into it uh, too deeply, video conferences have the same kind of issues. So um, every single aspect of the modern, in this case, business world, where my focus is, all those technological conveniences that make it possible to run multinational corporations around the world and have teams everywhere and to do virtual work. All of those put humans um, in a position where they are hobbled by their inability to read the emotions in the situation as easily as they could if it were face-to-face. -face. And so what the book is about is alerting everybody to those dangers and then saying, here are the things you can do. And it turns out, thank goodness, they're fairly simple things you can do to build the emotions back in. Uh, it's just you have to do them consciously where it was all done by your unconscious mind before. So we've all the experience. You walk into the office, you look at your boss, and you say, what's wrong? Because you know your boss, and instantly you know he's angry about something or he's excited about something or something's up, right? On a phone, you don't pick up on those things. And so the boss has to explain, here's what's going on, here's how I feel about it. We're just not used to doing that because we used to, we're used to letting our unconscious minds do all that work and our unconscious expressions of our emotions, our body language, do all that work. Now we have to learn to do it consciously. So that's what the book is about. It's full of uh, about 20, 20 tips and tools and techniques for putting the emotional subtext back into the communication, which otherwise gets stripped out. I think of some of the technological changes that have tried to address this, right? Like, for example, emojis, right? Like emojis or hieroglyphics or whatever pictures in our texts were sort of, from my perspective, like an attempt to try to convey these things that were often missed in texts. Absolutely. And, and, and at first, in fact, uh, there was recent research done about uh, emojis, emoticons, uh, and 
how they were still considered kind of juvenile in the business world. So, like, if you wanted to be a vice president or something, you want to get promoted, you shouldn't use emojis in your and emoticons in your communications. Um, but I come across, I come at it exactly the opposite way. I say, no, you should absolutely use them because they're, they're a little on the crude side. They're a little simplistic, but it is a way to start putting back the emotions in. And it sure saves a lot of time in an email. If you don't want the other person to misunderstand, put a little smiley face at the end saying, you know, I'm just kidding when, when I say that your hair is on fire. Um, you can you can save some time and agony, and that's what business is all about. It's about being efficient and, and uh, communicating clearly. So absolutely, the, um, I'm a big fan of those, and we need to use more of them and le learn to use them better rather than, uh, as I say, in the business world of thinking they're not dignified enough. Yeah, I think that's an awesome point. And it's interesting to hear you as somebody who's a thought leader in the subject talk about that. I mean, there was a time when question marks and exclamation marks were new, right? And uh, language is sort of alive and always evolving and changing. And we forget that when we look in, in sort of more contemporary times at dictionaries and thesaurus, where so much of our language feels like it's it's structured, but new words are constantly created and grammar evolves. And uh, you have to have some level of sort of structure or consistency so that everybody can be on the same page. But it, it, language is alive. And uh, I'm, I'm curious, 50 years from now or 75 years from now, 100 years from now, I have a feeling what you're saying about using emojis in business probably won't be as controversial because kids who are doing it now from the time they're seven or eight are going to grow up and it'll just be habit. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be completely natural. I mean, my favorite example of this is I say, We've been using uh, email since the 1940s when it was started by uh, some defense work workers and academics to exchange research information. Um, so we've, we've had them for, what, 60, 70 years, we've had email. And what have we learned? We've learned one thing about how to communicate better in email, and that is that all caps means you're shouting. <laughs> that's it that's all we've learned <laughs> yeah. and so uh, emoticons and emojis are a huge step forward as far as i'm concerned because at least they allow you to start expressing some emotions without fear of being misunderstood it's so hard to get that right in language it's interesting going back to the technology thing emails are not the same they were as they were 40 50 years ago right now you can add images and you can add video and all these other sort of elements of communication part of that i feel is because communication oftentimes feels incomplete i'm curious what are some of the other things that, i mean i brought up emojis but what are some of the other things that you notice that people can do to sort of infuse emotion and communicate more effectively through digital communication yeah so imagine um a typical business situation where you've got a team, as I say, that's dispersed all over the globe and you have a weekly meeting, um, then what happens is the boss gets on and, and, and says, okay, here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, how's everybody doing? And one person answers, fine, and then they move on, right? And so the folks in Singapore may be dealing with something horrible, but they've got the uh, their audio on mute and they don't bother to respond and maybe there's a language difference and it's just too way too much work. And so the, what I say to people uh, to do is a very simple code. Always start your audio conference with, with green, amber, and red. And you just go around and ask everybody, how you doing, green, amber, or red, um, like, you know, a stoplight. Um, and green means you're good and fine, there are no issues. Amber means you're having kind of a shitty day, but uh, you're, you're, you're still in the meeting and you're, you're capable of listening. Red means there's something serious going on. And then that allows the the uh, convener of the meeting, the boss, 
uh, to say, oh, red, okay, do you want to talk about that? And the person then is allowed to say yes or no, not ready to deal with this now. Um, but then everybody knows that that person's dealing with something serious and gives them a break and doesn't expect them to participate the same level of seriousness. This is the kind of thing that would get sorted out automatically if you walked into a business meeting where you were face-to-face -face and you looked tragic. Everybody would say, what's up? And you say, I can't talk about it, but it's, I'm having a bad day. Do you mind? You know, and everybody will cut you some slack. So it's, that's another very simple one that allows you to express the emotions in a safe way and that everybody gets used to if you practice it without a huge set of complicated uh, things uh, that would otherwise be hard to do. So that, that's another example. The, um, for teams that are uh, dispersed all over the world and can only meet each other once in a while or may never have met each other, then I, I'll say if you're mostly communicating by audio conference, every now and then have everybody send in a little video, uh, uh, just a uh, 30-second video of uh, how you're doing or give everybody an assignment, like give us a tour of your workplace, just show us what your workspace looks like. Because one of the things we do is we get to know people by understanding their surroundings. And so if we see a few images of their surroundings or we know what they had for lunch or, or we know that today is a, a, a big holiday in this country and it's not in our country, then we get to understand a little better. And that's how trust is built by those kind of contextual settings and, and understandings. Um, and so it's a whole series of little steps like that. Each one is fairly simple. Um, but if you take the time and care to do it, you can gradually build back in the emotional subtext that that all these uh, high-tech things have just stripped out. And it applies directly to interpersonal relationships, right? Not just uh, these sort of group things. Like if you're, I can imagine if somebody is talking to their girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or just a friend, you ask them, like, how's your day going? Like you send somebody a, a video, people do that more and more through sort of Instagram and some of these different applications. But uh, you send somebody, a, you could text them a video and, or ask them to text you a video and you get context for where they're at. So all these things directly apply to interpersonal communications. I think it's, or for, at least from my perspective as a, a relationship dating coach. So I think it's absolutely awesome. Uh, is, is there anything else you want to add, Dr. Morgan? This has been absolutely incredible. My great pleasure. I've, I've ventured here long enough. So uh, thanks for the great conversation. It's interesting to hear how much overlap and, and uh, similarity there is in, in, uh, what the two of us do, whereas you're helping, as you say, people work out the relationships. I'm helping people in the business world. But it's the same body language when you come down to it in the end, um, just signaling different things. You're looking for slightly different things. And everybody who's listening to this who is looking for a relationship has a career that they're building as well. So if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about uh, Dr. Morgan, I'm going to post some links in the Craft of Charisma website in the description of your podcast so that you can find out more about him, his books, the things that he's doing, his coaching, um, because it's absolutely incredible. So thank you so much for coming on and hopefully we can chat again soon. Great. Thanks, Chris. It was great to chat with you. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.